In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. The vision of Isaiah takes place in the year that King Uzziah died, which would be the year 740 B.C. King Uzziah is an important part of this text, even though his history isn't spelled out. It would have been well known to Isaiah's original audience. Uzziah became king in the south, the tribe of Judah, and there he reigned, beginning when he was 16 years old. Can you imagine that? Most 16-year-olds these days are playing video games and nothing more. He began to reign at 16 and reigned for 52 years. Decades of faithfulness, and yet, even though he was faithful unto the Lord, we are told in 2 Kings that he was either unable to or unwilling to remove the high places of worship that had intruded themselves all around Judah. What's interesting about this is nonetheless, the Holy Spirit says that he was a king that did what was right in the sight of the Lord. We see here the tender compassion and mercy of our Lord, but we see that he judges us not only in the absolute sense of sinner damned to hell or saint justified by faith in Christ, but also he looks at the overarching nature of our lives and renders a judgment. The judgment for King Uzziah is that he was a man that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, despite his shortcomings. And King Uzziah himself is one of many patriarchs from whom we can learn an important lesson. That while he was, generally speaking, and in the eyes of the Lord, faithful for decades, the Lord prospering him along the way during those decades, toward the end of his life, he became hubristic, filled with pride. And for one reason or another, we're not told why, King Hosea decided that he was going to offer incense in the sanctuary, in the holy place of the temple. He entered there contrary to the law of God, which stated that this was reserved for the Levitical priests alone. He was met by brave priests who resisted him at the potential cost of their own lives and the lives of their families. God, ever patient, ever long-suffering, did not punish Uzziah for his pride even at this point. But when the priests resisted him, Uzziah became angry with them. And at that moment, the moment of his anger against those who were calling him to repent, to cease and desist, God struck his forehead with leprosy. And he was a leper for his remaining days. 
that temporal punishment of God abiding upon him so that he could no longer come to the temple as one who is unclean, but also as one who had to reign no longer in Jerusalem, the throne of his father David, but had to reign from elsewhere. What are we to make of this? Well, the obvious lesson that just because one is faithful for decades does not mean that one cannot succumb to pride. But I think we also see here the nuanced and fatherly nature of how God perceives us as his children. Usia was not a perfect man, obviously. God allowed him to suffer devastating temporal consequence for his sin, obviously. And yet I think all of this simply demonstrates this fact, that God disciplines those whom he loves. And the leprosy that Usia bore was a mark, not of God's hatred, but a mark of God's love of his fatherly chastisement. He would rather have Usia bear a permanent mark on his body that his soul might be saved. So King Usia, after 52 years of reigning, had died. And in that instability, Isaiah receives his vision. He receives a vision of one who is seated upon the heavenly throne. As if God were saying to him in no uncertain terms, I, not Usia, reign. I, not the king after or the king after him, reign. And how important that is for us to realize, too, in the turmoil and upheaval of our nation and our political landscape, that the Lord sits enthroned between the cherubim, and he reigns over all the nations, each leader accountable to him, serving under him as he rules over the heavens and the earth. As the vision unfolds, we're reminded of the Ark of the Covenant with two seraphim emblazoned in gold upon the top of that ark. And it's as if these come to life, or rather, since they were constructed to be images on earth of a heavenly reality, we see the heavenly reality behind. Yahweh enthroned. Don't miss it sitting on a throne because he looks like a human being. The two seraphim flanking him on either side, standing in attendance on guard and in service, and yet quite literally also flying. Six wings these angels have. If you think heaven is going to be a boring place, you're going to be sorely disappointed. The angels are wild beings, and these, the Hebrew indicates, have a burning quality or nature to them, as if they're burning coals pulsating back and forth. 
With their six wings, the top two cover their eyes, their faces in humility before the Lord. The bottom two wings cover the rest of them in piety, while with the middle two wings, they fly. Back and forth, the seraphim chant antiphonally, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, which can certainly give us the wrong impression in English, as if he's the Lord of hosts, he's the guy who controls all the women with the trays of cookies. That's not what's in view. He's Yahweh of Sabaoth. In fact, we'll say that word later in the liturgy at the Sanctus. We'll say Sabaoth, and Sabaoth means armies. So seated upon the throne, being praised as holy, 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 is the Lord of the heavenly armies. The 4th century church father Ambrose saw in that phrase of the seraphim, holy, 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 a reference to the Trinity. How the Trinity and that mystery is one God yet three persons. So you have one word, holy, three separate times, indicating the tri-unity of God. As the angels chant back and forth antiphonally, their voices are so great that the temple threshold shakes. The entire place is filled with smoke. The train of the one seated upon the throne, the train of his robe coming down and mingling with the smoke going up. It's an incredibly beautiful picture. In terms of the temple architecture, again, that reflects the heavenly reality, it is that altar of incense that has the smoke billowing up. Yes, in heaven there's going to be incense, so maybe on earth there should be from time to time as well. Not a bad idea. That is the same incense altar that Uziah wanted to offer his sacrifice on. And God struck him with uncleanness. No doubt these things fairly fresh in Isaiah's mind. He immediately falls upon his face. And as we Americans do in the presence of Almighty God, he then asks, where can I get a latte for the divine service? No, on his face he says, Woe to me, I am undone, I am lost, I am going to die. Why does he think this? Because with his eyes, he has seen the Holy One, the true King, the Lord of hosts. And as the scriptures say, no one can see God and live. And that's true of God in his essence. But seated on the throne is the second person of the Holy Trinity, whom we know as our Lord Jesus Christ. Woe to me, for I am a man undone. I am a man of unclean, leprous, 
unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. Nothing I can say is worthy to be uttered in your presence. God, hearing his prayer, sends one of the seraphim who takes from that altar of incense a burning coal. And he comes and he places that coal to Isaiah's lips. And instead of screaming out in pain, as one might expect, there's nothing but a holy silence until the angel says, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been removed. Your sin has been atoned for. That song of the seraphim, holy, 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 is the Lord God of hosts, is used liturgically in the life of Israel up until the time of Christ. It's quite likely that Christ himself sang the Sanctus. It's retained in the Christian church and placed into our service of the Holy Sacrament. Perhaps you can already see the parallels that we come here this morning as people of unclean lips. If the sinless, holy, awesome seraphim are reverent and humble before the Lord, how should we be? And if a holy prophet like Isaiah falls on his face and confesses his sin, so too as we draw near, confess our sins. It's not a seraphim who takes a coal from the altar, but instead it is the Lord Jesus himself who takes his very body from the altar. And he places his body to your lips and he says, your guilt has been removed. Your sins have been atoned for. A church father, John of Damascus, whose dates span the 7th and 8th century, says just as the coal is wood pulsating with fire, so what's given you in the sacrament is bread pulsating with divinity. For what touches you is nothing less than the true body of Christ, the living God. We see then that God sent his son into the world not to condemn sinners but to draw sinners of every kind near. That each one of us might make our confession before Jesus. And each one of us might be touched by him with his body upon our lips. That our guilt would be removed. That our sins 
would be atoned for. That having Christ's body literally put upon our tongues when we leave this place and open our mouths, may Christ be found there. Christ for sinners. Christ for sinners and our families. Christ for sinners and our neighborhoods. Christ for sinners and our places at work. Christ for sinners and our online interactions. And indeed, whether we see it or not, it is already the case. Indeed, may God give us the ability to see it, or at least to perceive it. The whole earth, even now, is filled with his glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.